0: This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori by Joe Wells.
1: I said to my dad recently, what's all this fuss about the First World War? I mean, it was over 90 years ago. He said 90 years isn't that long ago. His dad's dad was in it, and millions of young boys, just like me.
2: It doesn't seem that long ago to me either. I'm Private John Parr, and I was the first British soldier killed in the war. And I must say, I wasn't expecting to die when I signed up. I thought it was going to be a grand adventure. It was all supposed to be over by Christmas. It says on my gravestone that I was 20, but that's not true. I was 16. I lied. I wasn't the only one who lied. It was a fairly common practice. I left my job as a golf caddy to become a bicycle scout with a Middlesex regiment. I was shot and killed near Mons on 21st of August 1914 while scouting on my bicycle. My war lasted less than one day.
1: It surprised me when they found out that they had a fantastic postal service in those days and men would regularly write home. Here is a part of a letter written by Private Jack Mudd four days before he was killed taking part in the Third Battle of Ypres, known as Passchendaele. He was just 31 when he left his wife Lizzie and their children to go to war.
3: The ground conditions today are atrocious. Many men are up to their knees in slimy, clinging mud. Sometimes it is so bad they would slip under and literally drown. Their cries for help will haunt me for the rest of my life, but we have been instructed that when attacking on no account should we stop to help our fallen comrades. It is my worst nightmare that I should die in that awful, slimy swamp. I think of you constantly, love. I often take your photo out of my pocket and look at your dear face and think of the times we have had together. Some lovely days, eh, love? When I think again of some of the worry I have caused you, it makes me all the more eager to get home to you, to atone for all the worry and anxious moments you have to put up with.
1: In November, Lizzie received a copy of an army form, telling her Jack had been posted missing. His nightmare had come true, and his body was never recovered. Reverend
0: Cyril Lomax. I'm Reverend Cyril Lomax. I graduated in history from Oxford and was ordained in 1895. I didn't enter the war immediately, as I had a commitment to my parish and had to remain in blighty but I joined the Durham Light Infantry in July 1916. As a rule, I'm a brute about letter-writing, but not out here. Things are so different. One is so glad to receive a letter, you can have no idea how one longs for the post and how disappointed one feels when there's nothing for one. Everybody hates the mud, but we bathe in it, wade in it, sleep in it. Clods of it adorn the most secret recesses of one's clothes, books and papers. I draw for my amusement and my sanity, although I do censor some of my drawings. If I wanted to make you creep, I might have put a realistic foreground of dead Boche and our own, fallen in every sort of attitude, some half buried by shells, others in the open. But the reality is too ghastly. There's none of the dignity of death, the flies and the rats see to that. The impression left upon one is one of waste. Indeed, the whole country would admirably do as a picture of the material conditions of hell.
1: It's hard to believe it that three million men volunteered to serve in the British Army in the first two years of the war. But there were so many dead and injured that government had to introduce conscription all men between the age of 19 and not yet 40 would have to serve. Amazingly, the Military Act of 1916 contained categories which were exempt on the grounds of a conscientious objection. 16,000 men applied for exemption. Albert Brocklesby was one of them. He was a Methodist and a devout Christian. When asked to preach a sermon at his local church, this is what he said.
4: Can you imagine Christ? Dressed in army uniform Armed with a machine gun or bayonet and a German soldier That picture is impossible And we all know it My family received a white feather The sign of cowardice But they stood by me I was arrested and put in prison Where I kept my spirits up By praying and singing in Along with other objectors I was taken to France And before hundreds of other soldiers We were sentenced to death my God, more than in that moment. I thank God my prayers were answered. None of us were actually executed. We were sent to a work camp to serve hard labour. 73 objectors died as a result of their punishment. In the House of Commons, Stephen Ginn said, There is one thing that nobody can deny them, that is courage. The most difficult form of courage in the world. The courage of the individual against the crowd made us feel we were not alone.
5: I'm Private Ronald Skurf and I knew that the fight was the right thing. After all, the chaplain told me so. I am an artillery observer. It was my job to locate and target the enemy positions. On the 7th of June 1917 at ten past three in the morning... Army sappers detonated 91,000 tonnes of high explosives placed under the German front line. It was only one of 19 other massive explosions along the 7-mile front. The explosion could be heard over 100 miles away in London. For 14 hours shells blasted the German positions. Can you imagine the hell those poor fellows must have gone through? I was sent in a no-man's land, and I can't describe the shapes and colours human bodies can take when they are blown to smithereens. I came across a young German sitting, holding a photo. At first I thought he was alive, as there was no outward sign that he was in fact dead. The photo looked like my wife, and I felt sick with shame. That was when I made a private pact with God, never to harm another person again. I tried to join the ambulance brigade, but they wouldn't let me. So from that moment on, whenever I was aiming the guns, I always made sure they would miss. I never told anyone what I was doing. I could have been hung for it. On the first day of the Somme, there were 60,000 casualties. One third of them were killed. But later on, the tactics changed with the use of more gas attacks. For they had realised that a casualty was more of a drain on resources than a dead man. We thought it was important to bury the dead, although the French didn't bother so much. One we didn't bury was a hand which was left sticking out of the mud. It was known as Farewell Freddy's hand and was touched for good luck as the men passed over to go over the
1: top. It is hard to believe it now that they could use such awful stuff on fellow human beings. But this is what some of the men said about the gas attacks. First Bombardier Palmer. The faces
2: of our lads, who lay in the open, changed colour and presented a gruesome spectacle. Their faces and hands gradually assumed a blue and green colour and their buttons and metal fittings on their uniforms were all discoloured. Many lay there with their legs drawn up
1: and clutching their throats. And here is a description from Lance Sergeant Elmer Cotton.
3: Propped up against a wall was a dozen, was all gasped. The colours were black, green, and blue, their tongues hanging out and eyes staring. One or two were dead, and others beyond human aid. Some were coughing up green froth from their lungs. As we advanced, we passed many more men lying in the ditches and gutterways. Shells were bursting all around. My respirator fell to pieces, with a continual removal and readjustment. The gas closed my eyes and filled them with matter, and I could not see. I was left lying in the trench with one other gassed man and various wounded beings and corpses, and forced to lie and spit, cough and gasp the whole of the day in that awful place.
1: and followed by Lance Corporal Abraham. Although our road
4: was only slightly sunken, it lay at the foot of a gentle slope, and thus acted as a gas trap. Our colonel and medical officer had both been affected by this stuff, and during the morning they were carried away on stretches. The rest of us stayed out there all day, coughing and retching, and gradually going blind.
1: And on the frightening night patrols, 2nd Lieutenant Cooper.
6: 2nd Lieutenant Cooper. I really believe that I am, after all, coward, for I don't like patrolling. Just last week, the battalion who alternate with us here lost three officers and an NCO on this business in front of the trenches. Let me try to picture what it is like. I am asked to take out an officer's patrol of seven men. Our duty is to get out to the German listening post, wait for their patrol and scupper it I choose my favourite corporal a gentleman a commercial traveller for the Midland educational in civilian life and and my six most intelligent and courageous men all sentries are informed we are going out so we shan't be fired on magazines are charged to the full one round in the breach bayonets are fixed my revolver is nicely oiled everything is ready as soon as the dusk is sufficiently dark We get out into the front of the trenches by climbing up onto the parapet and tumbling over as rapidly as possible so as not to be silhouetted against the last traces of the sunset. Out we walk through the barbed wire entanglement zone through which an approaching enemy must climb. But we have a zigzag path through the thirty yards or so of prickly unpleasantness. This path is only known to a few. The night has become horribly dark already. We wriggle along through the long grass for a hundred yards or so, and lie, and wait, and listen. In the German trenches we hear the faint hum of conversation. Nothing is to be heard near us, but there is a very ominous sign. No shots are being fired from the trenches in front of us, no flares are being sent up, and there is no working party out. This points to only one thing, and that is they also have a patrol out. There is no other conclusion. Suddenly, quite close to the corporal and myself, there is a heavy rustling in the long grass in the right. Now, if ever before, I know the meaning of fear. My heart thumps so heavily that they surely must hear it. My face is covered with cold perspiration. My revolver goes back with a sharp click, and my hand t- trembles. I have no inclination to run away. Quite the reverse, but I have one solitary thought. I am going to kill a man. This I repeat over and over again, and the thought makes me miserable and at the same time joyful, for I shall have accounted for one of those blackguards even if I go myself. Then, quite abruptly, they change their direction and make off to the right, where to follow them would be courting certain disaster. So, with great caution, We come in, and breathe again. When we're safely inside the trench, I sit down, and cry uncontrollably. There were moments of sanity, though. On Christmas Day 1914, only five months into the war, the German, French and British troops disobeyed superiors and fraternised with the enemy along two-thirds of the front. This, in a time of war, was punishable by death. We sang Christmas carols, exchanged photos of loved ones, shared rations, and played football. (laughs) Generals on both sides declared this act treasonable and subject to court's martial By March 1915, the fraternising movement had been eradicated, and the killing machine was put back in full operation. Our moment of sanity was over. Everything is ready. As soon as the dusk is sufficiently dark, we get out into the front of the trenches by climbing up onto the parapet and tumbling over as rapidly as possible so as not to be silhouetted against the last traces of the sunset. Out we walk through the barbed wire entanglement zone through which an approaching enemy must climb. But we have a zigzag path through the thirty yards or so of prickly unpleasantness. This path is only known to a few. The night has become horribly dark already.
1: It must have been wonderful for a son to receive a letter from his mother to keep him sane in all that carnage. Mrs. Cooper Clark wrote frequently to her son.
7: My darlings, we were so glad to hear from you. Although your notes contained so little news, they conveyed to us what we chiefly wanted to know that you were safe. My letter was returned to me with missing written in red ink across the envelope. Although it was standard procedure, it was a dreadful shock when it arrived. I couldn't bring myself to accept he may be gone. He was only 18 when he joined as a rifleman. He was just a boy. I was desperate to find out some news of him and wrote to the Rifle Corps, the Red Cross and finally the War Office, all to no avail. Finally, in June, I received confirmation that he had died of dysentery in a German field hospital. My darling boy was dead.
1: Other women, like Joan Williams, wanted to help the war by working in a munitions factory in Chiswick. Her decision was very unusual, as she was upper class and was more used to people working for her.
7: My parents were not at all keen when I told them that I was going to work in a factory, but I stuck to my guns. I was afraid that men would be jealous of the women doing skilled work, but was surprised that I experienced no problems in that regard. I worked on a seven-foot drum and lathe. Over a period of time, I got to know the other girls who worked in the munitions factory and dealt with the explosive TNT. Their bravery, I felt, was most admirable. I was less impressed with some of the language of my fellow workers and attempted to improve their vocabulary to curtail the swearing. When I finished at the factory I was presented with a tortoiseshell inkpot which surprised and touched me. I was less impressed with some of the language of my fellow workers and attempted to improve their vocabulary to curtail the swearing. When I finished at the factory, I was presented with a tortoiseshell ink pot, which surprised and touched me.
1: Amazingly, in 1916, they were running out of troops again, so the military service bill was extended to include married men. Men like Private Mowbray Meads, who was 35, and very surprised to find himself in active service. He wrote to his wife.
8: Well, dearest, I know you've been thinking a good deal about me today and wondering how I fared. I thought about you all last evening and pictured what we should have been doing. Listening to the bells ringing in Christmas morning. When I woke this morning, my first thoughts were of you and our dear little girls and I fancied I could see them running down to get their stockings. Well, dears, I can say I had the finest dinner I've had in the army. We had roast pork, potatoes and cabbage, fig pudding, jam roll, Christmas pudding and jelly. Of course, it
1: was all of our own procuring and not army rations. I hope he enjoyed his lunch as he was wounded soon after. It was serious enough for him to be sent home. He recuperated in Bradford where he wrote home. I wish there was some sign of an early
8: finish to the war and no such possibility of my again returning, but we should have to prepare ourselves for such an eventuality. The days when we were convinced that the war would be over by Christmas are long gone. I know I am not in a proper shape to go back to the front, but fear I'll have to go.
1: Mowbray was sent back to the front before the first of the German offences of 1919 when he was taken prisoner. His wife received a letter telling her that her husband had died in a military hospital from inflammation of the lungs. How sad that they sent him back to the front. An unpleasant Christmas present, Private Archie Surfleet wrote about lice. As
2: soon as you warm up, the blasted lice start to bite like the devil. It's horrible. They often think it's one of the worst things we have to endure out here.
1: At the outbreak of the war, an extraordinary black man named Walter Tell volunteered. He was born in Folkestone, but his father was from Barbados, and his mother was a local girl. They had six children together. Sadly, his mother died when he was just seven, and his father remarried. Tragically, He died himself just two years later. His stepmother wasn't able to cope with all six children, so Walter and his brother Edward were sent to a Methodist orphanage in Bethnal Green. After finishing school, he was apprenticed as a printer, but was always a talented footballer. He progressed through the amateur leagues to play for the first division club, Tottenham Hotspur, at a time when this was unheard of for a black man. Walter was full of strong character, as he had to endure racist taunts every time he played. He joined the football battalion, and they soon realised his leadership qualities as he was promoted to sergeant. In July 1916, he took part in the major Somme offensive, after which he was found to be suffering from acute mania, a condition now known as post-traumatic stress disorder. He was sent home to recuperate, during which time he was recommended for officer training. This was an unprecedented decision as army regulations forbade black people from becoming officers. He must have been exceedingly well thought of by his superiors. Lieutenant Walter Tull, now the first black officer in the British Army, was sent to Italy where he was mentioned in the dispatches by Major General Sidney Lawford.
5: For gallantry and coolness while leading his company of 26 men on a raiding party to cross the River Paev into enemy territory and bringing them all back unharmed, it is recommended he receive the military cross.
1: Later, he returned to northern France where he was shot in the neck and killed in action. He was such a popular officer that many valiant attempts were made by men to retrieve his body while still under fire. Sadly, despite their efforts, his body was never found. During the course of the war, there were many soldiers who wrote poetry to express their feelings. Rupert Brooke was one of them. He was commissioned into the Royal Naval Division, and when sailing, he developed septicemia from mosquito bite. He died on a hospital ship off the Greek island of Skyros, and was buried in an olive grove on the island. It's strangely ironic that he should be buried in such a beautiful place when he died taking part in such an obscene war. His poetry was very optimistic in the early days of the war. Here is a brief extract of one of them.
6: If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England.
1: Later on in the war, the sentiment changed completely, and some poets like Siegfried Sassoon even published articles in the Times condemning the war. Early in the war,
8: my brother Hammer was mortally wounded at Gallipoli. I was devastated and took unnecessary risks trying to avenge his death, but I didn't care if I lived or died. They even awarded me the Military Cross in 1916. Were it not for the intervention of my dear friend, Robert Graves, I would have been up for court-martial for my article condemning the war. I could have been hung, but Robert managed to convince the review board I was suffering from shell shock. I was sent for treatment to Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh, where I met another poet, Wilfred Owen. Dear God, Craig Lockhart was a fearful place, almost as bad as the front itself. Most of the men there were shadows of the people they once were. The early treatment consisted of nothing better than barking orders at them, accusing them of cowardice and malingering. Later on, they introduced electric shock treatment, a truly barbaric process. The vast majority of the men were completely incapacitated by severe shaking, making them unable to walk or complete the simplest of tasks. Whenever there was a loud or sudden noise, these poor souls would fling themselves to the floor or under a bed, many would have urinated or defecated. It was some time before a, a more caring treatment regime was introduced. I don't think I could have endured it had it not been for my friendship with Wilfred Owen. After treatment, I was returned to active service, first in Palestine and later in France, where I was wounded. Once again, I was sent home
1: to England, where, thank God, I took no further part in the war. In January 1917... Wilfred Owen was posted to France. His first action was to hold a dugout in no-man's-land for 50 hours, whilst under heavy shelling. He suffered concussion in March, but was returned to the front line in April, and he wrote to his mother.
4: My own dearest mother. Immediately after I sent my last letter, we were rushed up into the line. Twice in one day we went over the top, gaining both our objectives. Our company led the attack, and of course lost a certain number of men. I had some extraordinary escapes from shells and bullets. Fortunately, there was no bayonet work, since the Hun ran before we got up to his trench. Never before has the battalion encountered such intense shelling as rained on us as we advanced in the open. The next day, Lieutenant-Colonel Luxmore sent round this message. I was filled with admiration of the conduct of the battalion under heavy shell fire. The leadership of the officers was excellent, and the conduct of the men beyond praise. The reward we got for this was to remain in the line for twelve more days. For twelve days I did not wash my face, nor take off my boots, nor sleep a deep sleep. For twelve days we lay in holes, where at any moment a shell might put us out. I think the worst incident was one wet night when we lay up against a railway embankment. A big shell lit on the top of the bank just two yards from my head and blew me into the air. I passed the following days in a hole just big enough to lie in and covered with corrugated iron. Another officer lay opposite, in a similar hole covered with earth. I think the terribly long time we stayed unrelieved was unavoidable. Yet it makes us feel bitterly towards those in England who might relieve us and will not.
1: In August 1918, whilst being treated for shell shock, he wrote some of his most creative work. He was returned to active service in France and was awarded the military cross for bravery. Tragically, he was killed on the 4th of November whilst trying to lead his men across the Sambra Canal at Horses. This was just one week from the end of the war, which ended on the 11th of November at 11 o'clock in the morning. The last British soldier to die was Private George Ellison, a regular soldier who had been in the army before the war started. It is so tragic that men were forced to fight right up until the end. George was shot and killed while scouting the outskirts of the Belgian town of Mons, with just one hour left to go. It is ironic that his resting place in a cemetery near Mons is on the opposite side of the path, just a few steps from Private John Parr, the first British casualty. The number of casualties, both military and civilian, was about 40 million. 19 million dead, and 21 million wounded. The futility of it all is expressed in Wilfred Owen's poem.
4: Bent double, like old beggars under sacks. Knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on haunting flares we turned our backs, And towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshot. All went lame, all blind. Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through misty panes and thick green light As under a green sea I saw him drowning In all my dreams before my helpless sight He plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning If in some smothering dreams you too could pace Behind the wagon that we flung him in And watch the white eyes writhing in his face His hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori.
0: Dulcet Decorum Pro Patria Mori was written by Joe Wells, directed by Fran Kirkham and produced by Marielle Runacre-Temple, with Matt Kirby as the narrator, Mostyn James as Private John Parr, Bombardier Palmer and Private Archie Surfleet, Dougal Fulton as Private Jack Mudd and Sergeant Elmer Cotton, Joe Wells as Reverend Cyril Lomax, James Everett as Albert Brocklesby, Lance Corporal Abraham and Wilfred Owen, Fred Godward, as Private Ronald Skurf and General Sidney Lawford, Jules Boot as Second Lieutenant Cooper and Rupert Brooke, Colette Zacker as Joan Williams and Mrs. Cooper Clark, and Justin Palmer as Private Mowbray Meads and Siegfried Sassoon. Recording took place at Quince Studios and was engineered by Matt Walters for the Wireless Theatre Company. Visit www.wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk for more free audio productions.